You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you would remain standing and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We like to stand, if you're able, we like to stand uh, when we read God's word out of reverence. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him and by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has died with Christ. Rather, one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This morning we are going to take about 30 minutes or so. 35, maybe 40, 35 minutes looking at the first 14 verses of Romans chapter six. And my hope is, my hope is that we would discover one of the greatest doctrines in all of Holy Scripture. And that is the Christians, the believers, union with Christ. And it's here in chapter six of Romans where Paul uses the illustration of baptism to teach us about this most essential doctrine, the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. But before Paul moves into what is known as union theology, 
he first, Paul first wants to show us what our union with Christ produces. What does the Christian life look like? And this is in verses one through four. And if you're a note taker, I'm going to have three movements in our sermon this morning. The first one is the newness of life. So before Paul unpacks union with Christ, he wants to show us what our union with Christ produces, and that is newness of life. Look at verses one through four carefully with me. Notice the provocative question that Paul gives us in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or in in the Greek, God forbid. Do you not know? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Why, Paul? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Paul in this text isn't so much giving us an exhaustive explanation of what baptism is. Instead, Paul is using the illustration of baptism first to shape how the Christian ought to think about life after their baptism. Life after their conversion. In other words, what does the Christian life look like? Should there be any change? Some have said once you're a believer, it actually doesn't matter if you change at all in your behavior. It's all gospel. It's all grace. It has nothing to do with your behavior. Still, others say that that, that you have to change everything. In fact, if you stumble into sin at all, you're in danger of losing your salvation. So some, you don't need to change. It's all grace. No transformation. Others, if you sin, you're in danger of losing your salvation. I had a, a gentleman came up, come up after a sermon um, some years ago. And he came up and he, he said, Pastor, I've got a question for you. And I said, yeah, what is it? He goes, how long can a Christian go without sinning? And I just, I was like stunned by the question. I I didn't really know how to answer him. So when you don't know how to answer a question, you ask more questions, right? It's just a little dialogical cue. So I just said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, it's been over a year since I've sinned. And I'm just wondering how long I can go without sinning. And I said, brother, you broke your track record just now. (laughs) You just lied. No, I'm just kidding. I did not say that to him. But there are, there are some Christian theologies out there that says once you become a Christian, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. You can't and won't sin. And if you sin, you, you might be in danger of losing your salvation. That's one ditch. And the other ditch is it doesn't matter if you change. Well, Romans chapter 6 comes, of course, after Romans chapter 5. And Romans chapter 5 
is perhaps the most iconic portion of scripture regarding the free gift of salvation in Christ. In fact, you're there in Romans. Just look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Listen to what Paul has just finished saying in Romans chapter 5 before he picks up in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, verse 13, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The emphasis throughout Romans chapter 5 and even Romans chapter 4 is that salvation is a free gift. It costs us nothing and it costs God everything. It is freely given. And all throughout Romans, particularly Romans chapter 5, Paul lays out in staggering detail just how unbelievably merciful God is in extending salvation to us. It's free. And so radical and so scandalous is the grace of God in Christ that in Paul's mind, it could lead some to conclude that it doesn't actually matter how one lives their life after receiving Christ. It doesn't matter if they ever change. And so Paul's aim in chapter 6, in part, is to disarm this kind of thinking in the church. So he says in verse 1, what shall we say to all of these things, all of the things that I've been unpacking in chapter 5, the free gift of salvation? What do we say to this? Should we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul in Romans 6 is pleading with the church in Rome and by way of the Holy Spirit is pleading with us this morning to consider again what happened to them in the transaction of Christ for sinners. Paul is pleading with us to consider, to remember what happened to us when we became born again by the Holy Spirit. And his argument is that we have moved from death to life. Something fundamental has changed when you become a Christian. Not peripheral, not inconsequential, not peripheral, but fundamental when you come to Christ. Now, Paul is not calling for perfection like that brother who came up a couple years ago and wondered how long a Christian can go without sinning because he wants to be perfect. Paul is not calling for perfection. The burden of perfection has been taken off of the Christian and placed on Christ who is perfect for us. Amen. Paul instead, listen, is calling 
for a way to think and a way to live that agrees with the work of God that has begun in the heart of a Christian. Paul is saying, if grace has liberated us from the power of sin, which it has, how can some of you think and live as though grace has placed you more firmly under the power of sin? See, in in biblical theology or in Christian theology of sin, when you become a Christian, the power of sin is removed. We read it in our text. Sin no longer has dominion over you. It doesn't have power over you anymore. But also, in in the biblical corpus of Scripture, sin remains present in the heart of a believer. So although it doesn't have any power, there still is an ongoing residual effect of sin in our hearts. So all of us, in other words, walk with a limp. We're walking in the newness of life, but we're walking with a limp. Not as though sin has power, but sin remains and has a presence in our lives. But here, Paul, again, wants to emphasize the newness of life in Christ. Look at verse 3 and following. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of Life, baptism, baptism at a fundamental level, just like the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a consecrated witness of God's faithful promise to redeem a people to himself. That's why we baptize people as we are after this service by way of full immersion, right? Rob's going to get in there. It's going to be cold and uncomfortable for him. It's going to get more uncomfortable when he goes under the water, But here's the illustration that Paul is unpacking. We are buried with Christ. We go under. We're fully united with Christ in his death. We go under, but we don't stay under, praise be to God. We come out just as Christ removed himself from the grave. The power of the resurrection comes back to life. We bring Rob and others out of the water to symbolize our union with his death and with his resurrection. And so Paul is saying, if this has happened, this is an illustration of what happens to you. Remember, before God moves through you, he does something what? To you. This is an illustration of what has happened to you. You've died with Christ. But Christ did not stay dead, praise be to God. He rose again, so you've been raised with him. Therefore, there is newness of life. There has to be newness of life. You're no longer dead, but you're living. And he says, some of you are still acting like you're in the grave. Some of you are are acting like you had half of a baptism. You stayed under. You're you're in a death like his, but you didn't keep reading. And so again, Paul uses this sign of the new covenant baptism, this seal of his sovereign promise to compel his listeners to live into this new life they have been freely given in Christ, to walk as ones who have been resurrected with Christ. I've shared this quote with you before. This is the last on this point, but Martin Luther 
There was nothing more compelling for Martin Luther, the early church reformer, than the sacrament of baptism. He constantly, if you read his sermons and his writings, he constantly pulled from baptism, the, the, the sacrament, the seal, the sign of baptism in his theology was central. It burned bright in his mind, in his heart. And this is what he wrote, considering newness of life in baptism. Quote, Luther writes, Although it was without our works and good life that we found grace to obtain baptism correctly. So it was without our works and it's without our good life. God doesn't say, come into the baptism waters because you've earned it. Good job. You passed the test. Luther says, no, no, no. We don't come to baptism by our works or our good life. That we, Instead, we found grace to obtain baptism correctly. But then he goes on. We are still to devote ourselves to honoring and adorning it with words and works and our whole life from now on. We are to adorn our baptism. We are to adorn our new lives with the evidence of a changed heart. We are not dead anymore. Are we perfect? In some ways, yes. We'll talk about that in just a moment as we talk about union with Christ. In positional ways, ways we are perfect, but in practical ways, we are limping. We have this residual of sin still in us. Luther simply in this quote is echoing Paul in Romans 6. Baptism speaks the gospel. It is a consecrated witness of God's work. And the gospel is the thing that animates our hearts. It wakes our hearts up from death to life. And it compels the believer to live into the newness of life. So how do we view sin that is remaining? The way I see sanctification is in part growing increasingly uncomfortable with the things for which Christ died. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Sanctification is growing increasingly uncomfortable with the things for which Christ died. It is progressive. It happens over time. In my case, it happens far too slow. I wish sanctification was like a switch, but in God's economy, it's more like a a dimmer. But it is increasingly growing uncomfortable with the things for which Christ died. A life also that is increasingly untrusting of the flesh. I think this is why Christianity in some ways becomes harder. Because when you weren't a Christian, you you trusted all your instincts. (laughs) At least I did. I was following my heart, right? Which is, that is a death sentence to follow your heart. Hearts are designed to be led, not followed. But before you're a Christian, you don't know that. So you're reading all the coffee cup things and you got the t-shirt. I'm following my heart. I'm trusting my gut. I'm trusting my instincts. When you're growing in sanctification, that flips. You become increasingly untrusting of your flesh, And you become more trusting of God's word. And you become more compelled to pray because how do you rid yourself of something like this? 
And finally, a life that is being sanctified is a life eager to repent when one falls short in sin. Not if, when you fall short in sin, you are eager to repent. The evidence of a Christian life is not sinlessness. The evidence of a Christian life is struggle against sin. I don't want to delight in that anymore. I want to delight in God who is my greatest treasure. And beloved, don't put a pace on that. Don't look around, especially don't look on the internet because none of that's real. But don't look at the pace of other people's walk with Jesus and be like, they, they're like jogging and sprinting and I'm, I'm like doing this or army crawling through life. No, God has his pace for every believer. It's the direction you're going, not how quickly you're getting there. So Paul, in short, wants to encourage the Christian to live into the new life that they've been given in Christ. But please listen, this is crucial. Simply remembering your baptism is not enough. Nor is simply reciting the gospel. Nor is simply thinking about the cross and the resurrection. I just need to think of my baptism. I need somebody to tell me the gospel or I need to remember the cross and remember the resurrection. That's not enough. No, instead, listen, at the center of our Christian lives and at the center of us walking in the newness of life is one of the most often neglected doctrines in Christian theology, and that is our union with Christ. Your walk as a believer, your eternity that has begun in Christ has begun at the cross. His death and his resurrection opened the gate to your union with Christ. This, I think, is that missing piece of Christian theology. Oftentimes when we're, when we're wrestling with sin, we, we rightly think about the gospel. We rightly think about the death of Christ. We rightly think about his resurrection. We rightly think about our baptism, but we often neglect the fact that we have been united to Christ. We're in him. We're not alone. And some of this is perhaps Western thinking. We're just so independent. We're like, okay, Jesus cleansed my sins and that's it. No, he cleansed your sins. Then he adopted you into his family. Then he united himself with you and and him forever. At the center of our Christian lives is the heartbeat of our union with Christ. And it's so often neglected. And so I want to double down on this doctrine for just the few minutes we have remaining. This is second point, union with Christ. Listen to Paul's language in verses 5 through 11. Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Praise God, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Being baptized is a command to follow. Jesus said, repent and be baptized. So to be baptized is to walk in that commandment. But like every other commandment, it's also more. Baptism is more. It's also, again, a profound witness and illustration of our union with Christ. If you search the letters of Paul, I've said this to you before, if you search all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, you will never hear Paul refer to a believer as a Christian. He never uses that term. In fact, to be a Christian or to be called a Christian for at least 200 years was a derogatory term. Instead, Paul, it's a term of endearment now. It's not a bad thing to be called a Christian now. But Paul didn't use the, the, the title Christian. Instead, Paul's favorite way to describe believers is describe them as those who are in Christ, in Christos. What does it mean to be a Christian, Paul? It means to be in Christ, in Christos. I'll, I'll read this to you. This is Ephesians 1. Listen to the union language in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, in which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. What does it mean to be a Christian, Paul? It means to be in Christ. It means to be united with Christ. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one, what? In Christ Jesus. Therefore, according to Paul, the act of baptism emphasizes our union with Christ. The New Testament funnels every human being into two, only two categories. In Adam and in Christ. Politicians will funnel every human being into two categories, good and evil, <laughs> right? 
And of course, their side is good and the other side is evil. We reject that paradigm. It's an election year. In two years, it'll be a presidential election. We reject that paradigm. That is not a biblical theology of human nature. Not good and evil. In Adam or in Christ. And the consequences of these two categories are profound. Paul writes, listen, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, union language, in Adam all die. How many? All. In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Death in Adam, life in Christ, that is it. Two categories. Everything that was Adam's became yours and mine by nature. Everything that came in Adam and through Adam became ours by nature. That means all of us were born the first time in Adam. But in the gospel, in the gospel, everything that was Adam's became Christ's. We just celebrated this a few, two months ago at Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation. That's God who puts on flesh and is born a little helpless baby, right? Born a baby. God puts on flesh. You know what he's doing in that moment? He's becoming Adam. He's identifying himself with fallen humanity. In the gospel, everything, in the birth of Christ, everything that was Adam's became Christ when he put on flesh. So that everything that belongs to Christ could become yours. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. That means Christ's obedience to the Father is yours. To be united with Christ means that his obedience, his perfect obedience to the fathers, to his father is yours. His death, as Paul has been arguing in Romans 6, yours. His resurrection, yours. His seat in the heavenlies, yours. The affection of his father, yours. His place in the family of God, yours. His eternal inheritance, yours. The promise of eternal glory, Yours. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Everything that is Christ's becomes yours. That's why I said earlier that in some ways there is a perfection that has happened. Because when God sees our pitiful obedience, our limping lives, he sees our lives through his son. And he says, that daughter, that son is in Christ and they are beloved. They are accepted. And everything that is my son's is theirs in Christ. And more than that, we're told in the New Testament that we're given the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. The Bible says as a guarantee, a seal upon us. Therefore, there's no losing your salvation. You can't lose something you never found. It was given to you. You are Christ's. 
and he is yours. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, utterly central to our understanding of the Christian life and our understanding of baptism is our union with Christ. And baptism is a beautiful illustration. Finally, our baptism not only signifies the newness of life we have been given through our union with Christ, but baptism also signifies our fellowship in the church. So this is not directly in Romans chapter 6. It's elsewhere in Romans, but it's found directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 14. The New Testament testifies that we were baptized into Christ and were baptized into his church. So therefore, to be a Christian without the church is, is a contradiction in terms in the New Testament. We're baptized into Christ and we're baptized into his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Listen. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What does that mean? Jews or Greeks, slaves, free. All were made, Paul says, to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The implications of this are too much to unpack this morning. But let me just highlight four implications of being baptized into the family of God, into the church. First, to be baptized into Christ is to be baptized into the fellowship of the saints. This means that the church is not merely a place you go, but it's now an identity you have. Church is not merely a place you go. It is that. It's the gathering of God's people. It's not merely the place you go, but now the church is an identity you have. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people, right? You're a holy nation gathered. It's an identity you have. Second implication. Paul says we're all baptized into the same Christ by the same spirit. He says, Therefore, there's no fundamental distinction between us. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. This means that no Christian has more value than any other. That means this is not a country club where we walk in and we know who the haves are and who the have-nots are, who, who are the good Christians and the, quote, bad Christians. We don't gauge value and dignity by any other measure. We were baptized into the same Christ by the same Spirit, and this is glorious. This is one of the things I love about the church. Everywhere I go, I feel all of the differences, right? I feel different. All of the time. When I come here among you, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. It's glorious. What other place on planet earth is like this? There is none. That's why we're a city on a hill. We're a peculiar people. Millionaires and homeless come together at the same table. 
We take from the same cup, the same fellowship. We have the same inheritance, same different color skin, same Jesus. Oh, that we would capture this church, that we would capture this, not fake it, but live into this reality that we've been baptized into the same spirit. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. Third, we're the same, but we're also different. (laughs) There's nuance. It's not uniformity, right? Paul says that we bring different gifts and personalities, all of which God uses to build his church. We have the same dignity. We have the same quality, but we have different personalities, different quirks, different gifts, different things that we bring together all to glorify his name with one voice. We are the same and we are different. We are needed and we are needy. Finally, to be baptized into the church means that we are bound together by a love that transcends this world. This is becoming more and more precious to my heart. We are bound together by a love that transcends this world. That means our union together is not bound together by hobbies a shared love for the Lakers or Warriors or Bulls in the 90s. Just just kidding, sorry. Uh, Bad jokes, bad timing. This means our union together is not built on shared hobbies. It's not built on mutual friends. I know friends are important, but that's not what binds us. What binds us is not season of life. What binds us is not economic status. What binds us is not political affiliation or color of skin. Instead, we are bound together by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are bound together by a love so unimaginable that when we decide to live into this shared reality, this shared union with Christ, that's when the church becomes a city on a hill. That's when the church becomes salt and light to an aching and dying world. When we live into this thing that binds us, if we try to make political affiliation the thing that binds us, we will lose saltiness. I promise you, we will. If we try to make hobby and season of life the thing that binds us together, we'll lose saltiness. We will dim. That is not the thing that binds us. What binds us is the eternal blood of Jesus Christ shed for sinners like you and me. And when we come around that, everything changes. The world will know that we are his disciples. So may the Lord, may the Lord grant us a vibrant understanding of our union with Christ as we live out the newness of this life together. Now, I'm going to pray. Rob's going to change. We're going to come back together and we're going to get to baptize. With all of that now in our hearts and in our minds, we get to witness a baptism. When he comes up out of the water, we come up out of our seats in praise because we are simply echoing what's happening in all of eternity when one turns to Christ.